This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is like catch up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. How's it going, Sharice? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. Happy Chinese New Year. or Sorry, Happy Lunar New Year. All-encompassing. Have you been celebrating in London? Or are there even any sort of inklings that is going on? There are kind of. I went to Chinatown on the weekend. Not really to celebrate, but I wanted to buy radish cake and year cake, lobako and linko, so I could make it at home. And that kind of signals to me celebration. Got it. I actually really wanted radish cake. It was like... It was like the weirdest craving. You didn't get any? Oh, yeah. I don't think I did. Anyways, for people that are unfamiliar, you eat these. It's not really a cake. It's like a pudding. But it's not really, I mean, it's hard to describe because it's savory. And usually a cake or a pudding is something you think of that's sweet. I mean, well, one of them is sweet. I mean, radish cake people might have eaten before because you can get like dim that sum. at dim sum places. So it's like a fried rectangle of radish with meat and mushrooms and you can eat it during the year but people often eat it during Chinese New Year and then year cake you usually just eat during Chinese New Year and it's sweet and you fry it with egg and I brought in a bunch for my studio yesterday like I fried a bunch and it was a hit so I think that's what really yeah one thing I did want to talk about in the intro today was about the upcoming relaunch of our website yeah. I don't know if relaunch it. is the right word. It's more that it's like a, an update. We've alluded to it several times now. It's not really a relaunch because a lot of the things that we're doing will stay the same. I don't want people to think, oh, we're not doing what we're doing. We will be publishing stories much like we are and they will appear on the site similar to how they appear. It's more like there are going to be some new sections on the website and what currently exists will be done a little bit better, but things might not, you might not necessarily notice immediately. The thing that I've appreciated is getting into a rhythm of having daily commentary because we've had to kind of work through new editorial products. And it's been interesting to think of it that way because when it, when you're, when you're thinking of things to fill a void, like you're designing a product, so to say it's, it's, something you need to be very considerate of. And you're thinking to yourself, well, if I'm going to put this out, like how is it going to be done differently? Does it need to be done differently? And what is a successful outcome? This is the one thing I've talked about a lot with you guys is how do you bring news to our space? Our space being in many ways also like this global creative community where you're trying to help people make sense of the world around them, but also inspire them put them on to new things, et cetera. And it's interesting too, because as we move forward as a culture, the the things that might have worked 10 years ago, maybe aren't relevant anymore, or they're not 
the best way to communicate a message. So it's cool to see like how we've changed for better or worse. Like as much as people say people don't read anymore, right? I don't think that's entirely true, but I think that the way you need to deliver something to get someone to read is a lot different now. I'd, I'd be curious to see what 10 years of evolution would look like from let's say 1920 to 1930 in terms of a media product. I'd, I'd like, I don't know if there was a major invention in there, whether it was like a TV or a radio right. or whatever, but just to see how people communicate. Yep. So look out for that upcoming. Yeah. It'll be interesting as well to see what it does for us as writers to be thinking about it on a regular basis and to be writing that information yeah. because right now it's not part of our kind of daily flow. And I think when you become immersed in it, immersed in trying to consume and translate news, you'll have some new insight as well. Maybe what I can do is also give people some context as to why we felt the need to update Macon as well. I think that's probably pretty important too. It's like, I think that in general, the, the current experience you have with Macon is pretty pared down, pretty minimalist, but I don't think it does a great job of explaining what we do. The Macon experience right now is quite fragmented in the sense that we exist on social media, we exist on podcast apps, we have a newsletter, and obviously we have stories, right? And we have a community that's entirely separate on Slack. So you have all these fragmented experiences and there's no solid way to consolidate and communicate to people, oh, so what is making exactly? I mean, this is something we've we've gone through and- Well, the fact that you are listening to this podcast, making it up, proves that you were able to find making elsewhere because this podcast barely exists on the website. I went to a event last night. I went to the All Gone book signing and did Oh yeah, how was that? What I wanted to say is that it's still really interesting to me to meet people who have just recently found out about Macon or have this experience of Macon separate from having met us and then getting to meet them and hear what their thoughts are on it. But what I'm interested in is not exactly their specific responses. So that's why I didn't say like, this is what they said, but it's that when you you do something so much and you talk about it a lot, you put this certain frame around it and you're always framing it that way to yourself or to other people. But then you get to meet someone who's never met you before and hasn't heard you pitch make it in, in a way. And they have like a refreshing perspective on it. Or it's just nice to hear like what they think before you have to open your mouth. What kind of people did you meet there? Oh, definitely all streetwear world people. I mean, I, I always find it interesting because I'm I'm curious how they find out about Macon as well. Or maybe it's just because of- In this context, they definitely found out about Macon because I was invited. So I was on, oh. but they knew beforehand. And so there were people who had looked up the website, like the staff, like people who were working the event. Oh, got it. Got it. One thing I also wanted to mention is because I also think he's going to listen to this, is that comment uh, Bezod made in Slack. Yes. As of the time of this recording, you haven't replied yet. Do you, do you care to give him a response on air? I haven't replied yet because I needed more time to think of a considered response. But let's go ahead and read some of his feedback. So it's a follow-up from last week's episode about billionaires in particular. 
And he said, it's a conversation that's been going on a lot around my work and friend circles and feels like something people should be talking about more, but aren't. I think it's interesting because when he brought that up, I'm like, maybe it's just the news I consume, but I I also felt that maybe it was a conversation that was happening more frequently. Well, he's saying it's already happening, but he feels like it should be happening even more than what it is. Right, but and, and, that's subjective in terms of what a lot is. Yeah, and for a little bit of background, Bezad works in, in SF. Part of that discussion is also rooted into his surroundings, right? Because mm-hmm. I think there is a, a great degree of wealth and affluence that exists there. Mm-hmm. And you have seen, what is the right way of putting this? And it's more like how how you've kind of seen this sort of division being drawn, whether it's, this is a default thing that came to mind, but remember a few years ago where a bunch of local kids were playing on a f- football pitch, like a soccer pitch, and they got kicked off by a bunch of people that worked at um, like a tech company. I don't remember this, but sure. Anyways, that's the one thing that sort of immediately popped in my head where there is almost this questioning of how society and culture move forward because of all the divisions being drawn. Yeah, I'm, I think what's interesting as well from his comment that maybe other people would find useful is he was doing a writing exercise where he would write down the things that he believes to be true about the world as it is, and then a list of things that he believes to be true about the world as he wants it to be. And it it was an exercise that he found helpful about clarifying how he spends his time and whether he is contributing to move the world towards how he wants it to be. And I guess that's a good follow-up because it's, you know, beyond having conversations about wealth and the responsibility of the wealthy, what can you do personally? How can you turn those abstract conversations into something detailed and specific that you yourself are doing? So thank you to Bezad for listening and responding. Do you want to talk about stories that we published? Sure. So the three stories we did were Floating in Time with Daniel Arsham, uh, Making Money Moves, How Do I Price My Work, and The Monthly Editor's Letter. How did you feel about the overall outcome of the Daniel Arsham piece? I don't know if you remember this, but maybe about a year ago, you asked me if I thought I could become this full stack person and do stories start to finish every aspect. And this is getting one step closer. How do you feel when you have the ability to take a story from start to finish? Like what is the outcome versus you having one part to play within it? It gives you a lot of control, which is pro-con, I think. Pro, it means that you can be really detail-oriented in all aspects. And you can ensure that as a package, it's conveying the message that you want. But then con means, you know, did someone edit you? And do you need an editor? Because sometimes things are better when you give it to someone else for their input. So I don't know if it makes sense to be partitioned off from editing because you can do everything. At the same time, also, it's like really efficient, right? Remember we talked about this a while ago where it was the product or output of something that one person could do versus the product or outcome of something that requires many people to do? Does that change in this context? Or do you think that in reality, you're just wearing several hats so you still actually are creating something that would require, in a normal circumstance, a handful of people, like a writer, an audio tech, 
photographer, et cetera? I think doing everything comes from the fact that our team is lean and we have limited time and resources. And so being able to do everything doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to do it in terms of product, but it works really well in terms of allocating our resources, like I said. Like it does make it easier for everyone when you can do a story start to finish on your own. Another one that's been pretty popular has been Money Moves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Why do you think it's been so popular? Why do I think it's been so popular? Everyone wants to earn money. Um, No, more seriously. I don't know. Because I feel like, I mean, Scott is a good writer. These are good articles and they're useful. At the same time, we are not saying anything that is necessarily new. As in the concepts are not totally these making original concepts about pricing and quotations and and nor should they be. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, right? It's presenting an existing landscape in a way that makes sense. Maybe it's because they're written to be really easily understood, our readers. I think maybe it's the tonality of it, the delivery. Because I agree, it's like nothing that you couldn't necessarily find anywhere else, but maybe it's a little bit more hyper-dialed into the world of creatives. It's kind of funny because I think you and I, while we have confidence that we are producing good products, we don't always know what's going to land with success. And for example, your editor's letter, I think actually a lot of people read regularly and really enjoy, but maybe we don't even value it as much as they do. Maybe it's just the point of view that needs to be imparted on the world this intro has been running over. Maybe we should just get started. Definitely. Definitely need to get into All it. All right. My subject this week is why Nardwar's role in hip-hop is much bigger than you think. This is where I'm going to cue Elphick to throw in a little bit of Nardwar intro music. So this discussion that focuses on Nardwar, it's based off a story that ran in High Snobiety and was written by Robert Blair. For a bit of background on Nardwar, I'm going to say it so many times I'm going to start slurring my words, but he legally goes by the name John Ruskin, and he's a music journalist hailing from Vancouver, Canada. Did you pick this Um, for like Canadian pride reasons? No, we'll get to the end and we'll go to the personal side and and I'll I'll explain kind of why I chose this topic or why why I find so much inspiration in Nardwar. Okay, continue giving me background on Nardwar. All right. So I think that Nardwar has risen to fame because of both his interview style and his access. And he has pretty good access to some some big name artists. And a lot of times I think he's pretty he's pretty good about catching them at a point in time where they're just open to being interviewed. Like they're either in Vancouver for a show or they're or he's at a music festival. So those are kind of good moments. And over his career, he's interviewed a ton of key personalities like Kendrick Lamar. Uh, Cardi B, Little Pump, Lil Uzi Vert, Odd Future, James Brown, Snoop Dogg, DJ Khaled, and more. And his style and approach to music journalism is distinctly different. I think there's a what definitely sets him apart is this profound level of research. And as I mentioned before, his personality that goes into his interviews. And one thing that he does, there's always a structure to how he interviews people. He usually brings some sort of very obscure random gift that relates back to the subject. Let's say hypothetically he's interviewing 
um, you know, an artist. And this could have been an artist that came up in the same neighborhood as this person. And it's like, hey, you remember this person um, that came up when you were 17, but it might be the most random person that no one's even heard of before. For example, Pharrell Williams, when Nardwar interviewed him, Nardwar presented him with the first track that he ever worked on. It was a copy of Rackin' Effects Rump Shaker. laid down in Virginia. And I wanted to ask you, particularly Pharrell, about this joint right here. Is this where it all started right here with the rump shaker? <laughs> Pharrell, is this where it started? Pharrell Williams, the rump shaker. Yeah. This is this is this is one of the most impressive interviews I've ever experienced in my life. Seriously. Oh well thank you so much. It's great to be able to talk to you guys. This is, this is insane, man. Do you see this? What, how do you, who comes to an interview and hands you, you know, uh, you know, skateboarding Vancouver style, Mork from Art, uh, Mork from Art, Mork and Mindy doll, music of the cosmos, and a rum shaker record. Oh, mean art, word of human serviette, entering N-E-R? D. Stands for damn. I think this quote from Blair from the Highest Body piece is pretty accurate. Rather than Yo MTV Raps' Fab Five Freddy or Shade 45 Sway, Nardwar the Human Serviette has become the correspondent of choice for hip-hop's millennial generation. As opposed to being dyed in the cultural wool like Charlemagne the God or Joe Budden, the Vancouver BC native took an alternate route into hip-hop that manifests in his image, research, and interview approach. Where others rely on combativeness to manufacture newsworthiness, Nardwar's off-kilter style disarms and confounds his guests like no other. So for me, if you've never watched a Nardwar interview, I think immediately you are kind of struck by the goofiness, like for lack of a better term, it's like just the way he approaches it. It feels as though it's very casual and he's not there to interrogate you. He's really trying to get the best of you as a subject and your personality. I can hear you playing something in the background. You can hear That's you, it, isn't it? Yeah. Wait, how come you can hear it? But That's anyways, you've been busted, That's not Therese. possible. I heard you play this, the theme song. Because anyways, Teresa is doing her phones. research in the background. That's wild. Um, to come totally clean, I read this article, but I've never seen a Nardwar interview. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So, what is your perception of Nardwar? Mm. Oh wait, you've you've never seen anything. Period. Like even before this. No, no. I mean, I know who he is. Okay. I know who he is, and I've, I I knew the general gist of what you've said, but I've never watched an interview. But I also don't really watch video content, so that might be it. I don't know. So maybe I'll just jump right into like my personal thoughts. So I respect Nardwar, and I find he's super inspirational for never ever creating and or posturing himself in a way that is perhaps the expectation of a hip-hop journalist. Okay. I think that's what Blair mentioned. To back that up though, you have to say, what do you think is the expectation of a hip-hop journalist? I think the expectation is when you're in a world that is so defined by authenticity, there's a certain level of pressure that if you don't come from that same background, then you do not deserve a place there. Mm. So like, for example, I think hip-hop is a key 
sort of subculture in that sense. I mean, subculture being a loose term because I don't think it's really like that now. But I mean, if you don't really talk the talk or walk the walk, I think you're potentially in a position where you could be immediately dismissed. But the thing is, Nardwar knows so much. That's exactly how he's found a way to create value for himself. So he's created authenticity in his own way and created his own inroads. But what I'm trying to say is that you just said, okay, if you don't talk the talk and walk the walk, then you're not allowed in. But Nardwar knows like more than anyone else. So it's that like vast knowledge. Yeah. So what, I, what I'm trying to say is that- Is that not the same thing? No, but thing? he's found a different way in, right? Like I think that I think the authenticity the other way is, is like more, living it. Like I think like, if you look at everyone that like being a hip hop musician or somehow coming from that world. So if you look at the 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 examples given by Blair, like Fab Five Freddy, Sway, Charlemagne the God, right. Joe Budden, I think those people are all more prototypical. Even even from a from a, a racial background, right? Like here you have a white guy from Vancouver that's somehow impacting global hip hop journalism. So that's the way I look at it. I, I think that what Nardwar reminds me of is in certain contexts, when it comes to subcultures or cultures in general, there's a sufficient barrier to entry that I think that if you can overcome that barrier to entry, then you deserve a rightful place. And I think Nardwar is a great example of someone that perhaps wasn't expected to be allowed into this world, but he's found a way to like, through his research knowledge, in many ways, his ability to stick to his guns, despite not doing it in a prototypical manner, he's found a way to be consistent about it. I think that's incredibly admirable. This is one thing too, I've never met him. So I don't know what he's like off camera, if there is an off camera persona, maybe there is. Like maybe maybe by virtue of having Nardwar as a personality, it allows him to put up this guard or this shield that, you know, if, if he runs into certain walls when he's interviewing people, which he has, like he's gotten into confrontations. Being Nardwar, the human serviette, allows him a bit of protection. Like he knows that they're not actually hating on him, John. They're hating on Nardwar, the serviette. And I think also mentally as an interviewer, it would give you courage to press on or to do things that are different than being John Ruskin and asking a question. One thing that I think is a great example of his ability to kind of roll with the punches as an interviewer is this interview he did with Henry Rollins. So for those that are unfamiliar, Henry Rollins, part of Black Flag, one of the seminal personalities within the world of punk music. Over the course of the interview, you can just, you can feel it breaking down. It was wonderful talking to you. And the next time we do an interview, I preferred if you flossed and brushed your teeth because your breath is really intense. Actually, I ate at McDonald's this morning. That's perhaps what's doing that. Thank you for thinking of Well, you like coffee, don't you? Does, does coffee help you poop at all? Henry, Henry, does coffee help you poop? I have no idea. Okay, and doot doot a loot do Henry, doot doot a loot do And I think this is, for better or worse, like one of the things that Nardwar, as a personality, doesn't succumb to is that when things get awkward, he doesn't adjust himself to reduce the awkwardness. Yeah, that's really crucial. That to me is kind of interesting. Um, it is really interesting but, because if you think about what makes for a good, well, let me, let me phrase this as a question. What do you think makes a good interview overall? Like not just thinking about Nardwar, but a good interview when you go into it and you come out and like, this was a good interview. 
I mean, you're, you're trying to come out with a sense of honesty and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Like this is the real person that you're speaking to and they're not putting on a facade. You're able to connect with them emotionally that goes beyond just some sort of like objective agenda. You know, like sometimes if you're able to connect with someone on a more emotional level, they don't necessarily focus on what is the script. Like, can you get someone to deviate from the script because going off script is more important to them? I mean, that's just off the top of my head. No, and I think, I I mean, that links perfectly to what I was going to say about Nardwar and awkwardness, which is that if there was absolutely no awkwardness in an interview, then it might not be a great interview because it means that everything was going according to some kind of pre-planned situation. It's like if we did this podcast and neither of us fumbled or spoke over each other or had to stop and think, then that means somehow what you're saying is just like programmatic. Yeah. Like following a script. So the fact that he embraces it and just rolls with it means that he gets something really great. I think one thing that's also really interesting about Nardwar's approach is that he doesn't necessarily focus on just big names. Like I'm sure if you look through his catalog of of interviews, they're a lot of people and they're not just hip hop and they're not just superstars. So I think it's a very synergistic sort of way of approaching the editorial side of it because you're simultaneously breaking new people. And also I think there's a level of camaraderie and or respect when you're up and coming and someone like a Nardwar is willing to speak to you. Yeah. So I think that's like a a really crucial part of it too, is that I think one of the things that was mentioned was he did an interview with Tyler, the creator and his crew and Odd Future right before their album dropped, like two months before. And like, if you look at it now, like look at where they are now and you can always look at someone like a Nardwar. Hey, you know what? This guy was ahead of the curve. And sometimes it's, you don't even need to be right. Like if if you interview someone and then the year after he disappears, it's not like anyone's like, oh, Nardwar only interviews duds, right? <laughs> People only really remember the victories. Right. But it also does say something about Nardwar as a person or like as a persona having this taste that is worth following. I, I mean, I guess it must come from expertise and research, right? Like being able to have insight into looking at the industry and seeing which of these people who seem like newcomers are actually going to make big waves. In a time when there's sort of like this this uncertainty around media in general, it's like, well, how does a Nardwar fit into the the overall landscape versus traditional music journalism? Yeah. You know, that that's under a brand, that's under a publisher, whereas he's doing his own thing. And I think that's also really interesting because for better or worse, Nardwar is a legacy starts and stops with him, right? Yeah. And I think there's something kind of interesting about that because it's not like he's trying to build Nardwar the media company. It's really he himself. Does anything about that appeal to you personally? Yeah. I think that it made me think about that. I think in the last briefing on the briefing before we posted about Dave Osprey, who is trying to live to the age of 180. And it's like kind of this goal of a lot of these tech billionaires to seek immortality and there's something about that that is disinteresting to me like it's it it almost takes the meaning out of anything because if there's a guarantee behind something then i think it takes away from the preciousness of it when something's finite i think it's 
much more valuable. And in this case, you mean life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but how does that? How is that a response to my question about whether what Nardwar does is appealing to you personally? Oh, I thought you meant on the basis of him not trying to be a media company, but being an individual. No, I think I meant but, more like, would you prefer to have done Eugene Can like Nardwar, the human serviette? No, no. Instead of I think doing make funda- it, fundamentally, you, know, like you could be yeah, no. Eugene Can. I, I cannot come up. You could be extreme Eugene as Fundamentally, a public persona. As a, from a personality, I don't know if I like it. But there's like a need I for it. You're just not personally the one to do it. No, I also don't think so because the way I look at it, I think the vastness of what we're trying to achieve is far beyond one person. It kind of goes back to what I had asked at the beginning. It's like doing one thing on your own versus needing mm. a team to do it. Like I'd much rather be part of a team dynamic than an individual That's interesting. dynamic. That's interesting as well because I was having a conversation about ownership recently. And I also said something along the lines of I'd like being part of something as opposed to being the sole owner. I think it's that Nardwar has this great flexibility, right? In terms of who he, or I assume he does. I don't know if he has a team behind him. He has this great flexibility in choosing who he interviews and how he wants to conduct that interview and what the final video outcome looks like because it's his name on it and it's his face. Mm -hmm. But I think the pushback against that is, you know exactly what I said in the intro. Is there any chance that when you add other people, there's a perspective that's different. And I guess in Nardwar's case, there isn't because he has such a unique individual perspective. But I think in a lot of cases, your individual view could be improved with the addition of other people. And maybe it doesn't look like, sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. Yeah. That's kind of what I prescribe to too. Like I, maybe I don't have enough confidence in my own individual view to operate as a lone wolf. I don't know if it's Oh, I don't know. Is that what I'm saying? I think we as individuals are intelligent and have something of value to contribute. But like this podcast is better by being the two of us. So my subject this week is why CAPTCHAs have gotten so difficult and where CAPTCHAs are heading. The first thing I learned in this article from The Verge is that CAPTCHA is actually an acronym that stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. Did you know that? No, I didn't. And famously, the Turing test developed by Alan Turing in 1950 is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent or indistinguishable from a human. So CAPTCHAs in more visual terms, it's that in the past, it used to be those like warped text blocks and then you had to type in the text as it appeared in the image and it's gotten more and more complicated, right? So it used to be that and now it's evolved into you have to select all the images that show you traffic lights or storefronts. 
And the reason for this is because the entire premise of CAPTCHAs means that they just get more difficult for humans to do because machines get smarter. And it's this weird thing that we use the CAPTCHAs to train the machines, but as we do that, we keep moving the goalposts. So it's like this constantly, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting idea because it's this constantly evolving tool because we keep using it and because there are millions of researchers and scammers and computers and humans solving puzzles. So it's also, I know it sounds really boring, the CAPTCHA, and we all get slightly annoyed when you have to do it, but it's a representation of AI capacity. As you see, as a regular human, as you observe the CAPTCHA getting more and more difficult for you as a human to do, it's a demonstration of how intelligent machines are. And right now, essentially, the machines are just as good as us at basic text, image, and voice recognition tests. And in some tests, they are better than us. Like there was this test five years ago where the machine got the CAPTCHA right 99.8% of the time. And actually the humans only got it right 33% of the time. So we're doing terribly if this was a competition against the machines. What is interesting to me in this article is this idea that the CAPTCHA is this attempt to find out what is uniquely human. And I don't know if everyone designing a CAPTCHA thinks of it that way because they're thinking about like, how can we challenge the machine? But it's also how can we make a puzzle that universally, globally, all humans can do, but machines cannot. So is there some kind of essential humanness that can be demonstrated in a puzzle? And some examples that developers and engineers have played with are facial expression, gender, ethnicity, trivia, nursery rhymes, cartoons, petroglyphs, logic games. But the problem is that there's such a problem. I don't know. The beauty maybe is that in the world, there's so much culture and vastness of human experience that they just cannot find an average. It's like an IQ test in a way. But it's not an IQ test because it's meant to be for everyone to do. So what I mean by that is by not having a universally established test, there's going to be certain things that play to the advantages of certain cultures, yeah. right? So it's kind of like an IQ test where like if you're not a native English speaker, right. but you're doing a test right. in English. That's what I'm trying to get yes, at. Yes. So the, the thing that maybe needs to be considered is when you were saying what are tests, like motor skill to me is probably the one thing that is a little bit, um, when I say motor skill, not like moving a puzzle piece into place, which I've seen before, but more so along the lines of maybe you have to use your actual fingers to manipulate yeah. something, right? Yeah, um, yeah, actually that's the concluding point of the article is yeah. that we can't prove humanity or they present this idea, this argument, I guess, that is up for debate that we can't prove humanity through things like image text, audio recognition. It has to be how we move through the world and the internet and spaces. And that's different from machines. It can't be performing a task because the machines can perform the tasks just as well as us at this point. Did the article highlight why certain CAPTCHAs like the Google ones 
are now focused on you identifying items or objects? It kind of gives two reasons for it, but I cannot say with complete certainty that this is why Google does it. The machines have exceeded the text recognition ones. And the image recognition ones that we do now are this in-between point where machines aren't quite as good as it. And the image recognition ones we do now are at this in-between point where the machines are not quite as good at it as we are, and we can still do it. And the other thing is that we're training the machines. Like we are training computers to recognize traffic lights by completing those puzzles. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the ultimate use case is to put it back into whatever the required goal is, right? So if it's traffic lights, then it's in hopes of figuring out autonomous driving or increasing the safety of autonomous driving, right? I don't know if you were aware of that. No, I did not know. Yeah. So like basically, uh, this is one thing that I, I came across a while ago. It's called HCAPTCHA. The way that it works is, let's say that you need some sort of machine learning done. You can now do it at scale by finding someone that needs CAPTCHA uh, services and then layering it on top of that. And then you also get a kind of, um, there's a relationship there, like a financial relationship. Yeah. So for example, I'm, let me see. Let's say this, let's use this example. Let's say that you are Flickr and you want to develop your machine learning so that you want to create this mood board tool where people can just type in, hey, I need photos of people in a canoe um, in a lake with lots of mountains, right? Yeah. So I would basically put this on, let's say, Gmail or let's say Macon as a login or sign in or Slack or whatever. And I would test for this. So then now when you log in, the CAPTCHA is really about you choosing mm-hmm. the people that represent the, the requirement. Yeah. So it's kind of like finding a way to utilize CAPTCHA, but also going the next step of involving humans to help machines get the data they need to improve. Yeah, but it's this really funny thing where it's this really funny thing because the point of using a CAPTCHA is not just to train the machines, but you're trying to keep the machines from accessing something. Like for example, if you are processing a PayPal payment, you might encounter a CAPTCHA because it wants to prove that this is a human doing using the service, trying to transfer money and not a computer. Yeah. So it's like, we're trying to keep out the computers, but we're training the computers at the same time because they want, we want them to be better at other things. But we don't want them to have access to the specific thing that we're accessing. It's just, it's just yeah. like funny. I just think it's funny, personally, yeah. the situation that we've- Why did you pick this topic? In. I think it's different. I mean, at this point, we're at episode 81. <laughs> so there's a lot of things we've talked about. I don't think we've ever talked about CAPTCHA. I think it's like a regular part of our lives. And I didn't even get to the bit that like affects each of us personally. So the thing is, because of what I said about humanity being proven through how we move through spaces, what it means is that websites and companies like Google are using continuous authentication in order to prove that we're humans, that we're human users. And what that means is that websites are 
observing user behavior over time, looking for evidence of automation. Often, when we talk about this, it's about privacy and about security and how we feel about surveillance. But I don't know. It's I feel kind of defeated by it. <laughs> this like resisting the constant surveillance that is happening in our lives. It's weird to think that my computer is constantly monitoring me to check that I'm human. It's kind of like that thing that we talked about a few episodes, quite a few episodes ago with Upwork, right? Because they wanted to prove there was a human. Yeah. 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 Well, in that case, it was trying to prove- Maybe you you can refresh people's memory. Yeah. A couple of episodes back, we talked about this Upwork feature where if you were a freelancer working on a time-based project, Upwork with your approval and the client approval would take screenshots every now and then to check that you were working, like based off of what was on your screen. And it was really controversial, that tool, like that kind of monitoring. But I think the difference is that the monitoring that we're talking about today with CAPTCHA is invisible. But I mean, it must exist like that data, right? So if you hack that, you know, who has access to it? I guess I also just picked this because I'm interested in CAPTCHA representing this quest to find what makes us humans unique and it's not task performance i don't think so either i suppose that's encouraging i think that because the thing is the caption needs to be sufficiently easy too like it can't be so complex that it takes you five minutes to figure out yeah no it can't and i mean we are regularly abled but if you think about people with disabilities it's very easy to see how the captcha is a failure and i was trying to think about how does this relate to creativity because this is making it up, right? And I think it's that. It's the idea that the expression of creativity makes us human. I don't know how you translate that into a CAPTCHA test. That would make sense. But I was thinking about, is there some sort of essential creativity gene in humans universally? I mean, the the one thing I was thinking was if there's a series of answers that only you know that connects with the CAPTCHA where as you go through it and you're logging in, like let's say, for example, my favorite food is Hawaiian pizza. So then it'd be like, which of these ingredients are on a Hawaiian pizza? And it'd be like a pineapple. It'd be like ham or whatever. Like those are things that I was I was wondering if that would work. I don't think so. That's still task performance. No, but the the bot would never know what your own preferences are, right? If I like, if it's a secure answer given, and hey, I see. only it's not really how the capture works though, because they're not yeah. personally tailored. Stupid idea, Eugene. Well, not stupid. Well, I was thinking like, could it be something such as drawing a cat? But it can't be because Google's also trained their machines to draw cats. No, it couldn't be draw. It definitely couldn't be drawing a cat. I mean, what do you think is more important here? It's ensuring a human's on the other side or as much as that's part of it, it's not 100% of the ideal goal because you need some sort of performative aspect to achieve a data metric as well. Or is there there some sort of performative measure that needs to be there because you're trying to get data out of it? 
I mean, I guess I was thinking about it just as a way to test that you're human and not the data side of it in terms of like training autonomous cars to be better. I was interested in this idea of, can you come up with this universal CAPTCHA, this public Turing test that would work in every country for all, you know, speakers of any language and can only be done by humans. And I was trying to think of it like it has to be some expression of generating something, but I could be wrong. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.